welcome to the Amor Mundi podcast from the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities at Bard College. Amor Mundi means love of the world. We are here to explore ways of thinking together and loving the world in the spirit of Hannah Arendt. During the social isolation of the coronavirus, the Amor Mundi podcast will speak with writers, scholars, and activists in a series called Thinking the Plague. This is episode four, Living with Honor. It features the Arendt Center's founder and director, Roger Berkowitz, in a Zoom conversation with Professor Uday Mehta, a political thinker and scholar focusing on Mahatma Gandhi. Hello, my name is Roger Berkowitz, and I'm the founder and academic director here at the Hannah Arendt Center at Bard College. And today I'm thrilled to be in conversation with my good friend, Professor Uday Mehta, a distinguished professor at the CUNY Graduate Center in New York. Uday has written widely on liberalism and most recently on the work and thinking of Mahatma Gandhi. Uday's forthcoming book, A Different Vision, Gandhi's Critique of Political Rationality, seeks to understand the political implications and relevance of Gandhi's thought. Today, Uday and I will be talking about the relationship between Gandhi and Hannah Arendt, as well as the overriding question of how to live honorably amidst our very trying times. So Uday, we're, we're all isolating and sheltering in place uh, during the coronavirus. Can you just tell us quickly where you are and how you're finding time, or are you finding time to do any thinking or reading or writing uh, during this period, and, and, and how is it impacting you? I'm in Western Connecticut, where we have friends. Uh, and uh, let me tell you about my day. I wake up and then I have breakfast and then I start to read. I mean, sometime at around five, uh, I go for an hour's walk. Uh, uh, we come back and, you know, uh, there are four adults here in this house. So one of us takes responsibility for cooking. and. Uh, we eat dinner around eight, and then so, we settle down uh, for watching Netflix or something. <laughs> Sounds almost idyllic. Yeah, it is. It is yeah. For the surrounding context. Yes. Okay. Um, one of the things that I find really fascinating about the experience of this if plague, if, if I'm allowed to call it a plague, and I think it's not wrong to, is that when you read the literature of plagues, as Jill Lepore did in this weekend in an essay she wrote, Mm. and went through many of them. One of the overarching themes is isolation, boredom, uh, barbarism, dehumanization, the sense mm. that we've been completely cut off. This seems to be the first plague of the internet era in which people are not cut off. People are talking to each other. I'm spending more time catching up with friends and talking mm. to people than maybe I did in my busy, normal life. Is that something you're finding? Are you feeling isolated or, or engaged in the world? You know, Roger, um, I think I know what you're saying. Um, we are isolated, and through that isolation, we've discovered a sense of togetherness. So I find that to be ironic uh, in the obvious senses, um, but um, I also find that to be kind of revealing about modern life. Let me tell you what I'm worried about. I'm worried about two things. Uh, there are certain forms of social life 
that depend on physical contact. So what's an example? We live in New York City and our daughter studies in a school up the road and my wife and I in turn take her to school in the morning. On the way back, there's a fruit seller as they are on various corners in New York. This guy is Bangladeshi and almost every day we buy fruit and vegetables from him. Since we know him, we exchange certain pleasantries. So I often think about him, you know, is he still on that corner? When I last saw him, I asked him, how is business? And he said, it's not going good, well. And the reason he gave is these Americans are too scared. Again, we have a local greengrocer um, and we used to go there regularly. Now, now we don't. So I'm worried about that on the one hand. These tactile relationships, like, will they survive this? I'm also worried, as I said to you when we last went for a walk, I'm worried about what this will do to institutions of higher learning, like mine, uh, who have financial crunches. As you know, online teaching, it's taken hold. And I think the reason it's taken hold is because it saves money. So there are budgetary considerations. Now, the thing you and I teach, I don't know if we can transition to online teaching. My friend David Bromwich, uh, who's a professor at Yale, says he wouldn't know how to teach online. I wouldn't either, even though I've done it for this last two weeks. So I, I wonder if the financially stretched institutions of higher learning, if they can survive this change. And in addition, I wonder what will happen if they do. So if this is, if you think of this as an experiment, I wonder about its failure, and I wonder even more about its success. Yeah, no, uh, that's fantastic. You know, I hear a number of things in what you're saying. A worry, right, uh, about, in a sense, I think you're saying we might become too uh, at home in this world of working at home, isolation, yeah. uh, and lose the kind of tactile physical relationships, the institutions, and then something else that you didn't mention explicitly, but I think is underlying what you're saying, which is when you say, how would I teach and this, I mean, I guess one question to ask you is what is it that you teach that's hard to teach in this way? Because my, my 10 year old can learn math mm. on Dreambox mm. and loves, I mean, he's, play, he's doing more math now than he's ever done because he loves playing math on Dreambox. Mm. There's certain things that I think you can teach yeah. online. Can you say a little bit more about what it is that you teach and that you think is hard to teach online? Yeah, I can, uh, because I just taught yesterday. So, you know, I have a graduate seminar of nine or 10 people. Yesterday, we were discussing book three of Aristotle's Politics. So the fact that we're discussing this book, which I'm sure you know, is not a systematic book. 
So Aristotle comes back to certain points. Uh, he has certain very quotable lines. Uh, man is by nature uh, zoon politicon, political animal, etc. And then he modifies that view. Hmm? Um, so I think it's in chapter three of book three. Uh, he says, um, oh yeah, he brings up this notion of self-sufficiency. And we're all reading different translations. So one thing that I can't do is I can't point to certain passages. I learned that yesterday because I just can't show them. Now, Zoom uh, has a way of dealing with that, which is you give them pagination numbers and tell them, you know, it's approximately there. And, but I'm sure there's a technological solution to this um, because somebody told me that uh, on the side, there's a bar where you can raise your hands and you know, I can call on people. So interruption is disturbed. And in my kind of teaching, interruption is constitutive of the way I teach. I expect people to interrupt each other. So, you know, that feels like a loss. Uh, I'm not giving lectures uh, because I don't teach undergraduates. There's an intangible, but for me, quite vivid sense of what I'm losing um, in this online teaching. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you can put up a quote online and you can have a series of quotes with slides or something that I'm sure some technological way to put up on Zoom. But what all of this does is it regiments the lecture process, the teaching process. It turns the teaching process more and more into a transmission of knowledge. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and what, what I hear you saying, if this is fair, is that in the, in the classroom where you can pause and it doesn't feel awkward, or it, if it does feel awkward, you can control that awkwardness, yeah. and where you can be interrupted and you can interrupt people and you can see people and you can move around thinking happens, yeah. whatever thinking means. Yeah. And, and, and I think you and I, we've taken many walks and had many talks. One of the things I think we both share is a feeling that we teach more thinking yeah. than we do transmission of knowledge, although that of course happens too. Yeah. And uh, I do think that while the internet and Zoom and all sorts of things might be very good for teaching transmission of knowledge in certain ways, there's going to be something lost that's an intangible, that, yeah. that's hard to, hard to quantify. And I think you're right that what is lost is the process of thinking. Yeah. Uh, what does it mean to see somebody thinking? Uh, and, 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 as, and for someone, you know, you and I study two thinkers, I mean, many other thinkers, but I study Hannah Arendt quite a bit and you study Gandhi. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I think both of those thinkers are known for is their unconventional, really radical, provocative thinking. Yeah. And they have images. I mean, Arendt lying on the couch thinking <laughs> and, and Gandhi almost sitting, almost meditatively thinking yeah. Yeah. Uh, are part of who they are. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's something I think very hard to, to transmit yeah. without personal, physical interaction. Yeah. When you, one of the things that you and I have, have talked a lot about is ways in which Gandhi and, and Hannah Arendt overlap or sometimes have quite interesting similar critiques of liberal and Western society. Mm. And, and one that strikes me as, as deeply meaningful now, and the one that's very hard to talk about, is one that I'd like to talk a little bit about, right? Which is that 
you know, we, we live at a time in which I don't know how many, but many people are dying. Yeah. There's a fear of death that's palpable. I mean, I'm an American. Uh, I know you live in the U.S., but even though I've lived through a few wars, mm-hmm. in my lifetime, none of those wars have been on the American soil. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, certainly in my lifetime, there's never been as palpable a fear of death surrounding me. And the reaction to that has been swift and intense. People like you know, Governor Cuomo and, and many others have made statements along the lines of, we are going to do everything we can to preserve every life that we can. Yeah. And a debate has emerged, as you well know, that uh, it's been framed, I think, in a terribly reductionist way, the economy versus life. And if you say, well, there's other things besides life, like profits, you know, you sound rightfully sound like an idiot. But Gandhi and, and Arendt are both thinkers who were skeptical of the valuation of life as the highest good. And one of the things that, one of the conversations that I've been trying to have is when we say that you can't go to a funeral because Mm -hmm. it might lead to more death, or you can't visit your loved ones in a nursing home or a hospital, or you can't go to a church or a mosque or a temple, you can't see your Bangladeshi grocer on the corner, as as you said. These are things, these are tactile, institutional, familial institutions and traditions that we are, in a sense, saying are not as important as keeping as many people alive as possible. Mm. And I suspect that Gandhi would be someone who might raise a voice against the kind of valuation of life as the highest good that we are seeing happen regularly now. Is that right? And, and how do we begin to think about that in this time? Let me put this in a broader context. Uh, so I think modern political theory emerges out of a concern with life. And which is to say, that's what Hobbes is writing about. And the counterpoint to that is Hobbes, maybe because of the English Civil War, believes that the social is defunct. And there has to be this new language. By social, he means many things. He means above all else, religion, all sorts of mediating institutions, like clubs, societies. Families too, or or not? Uh, I think he means families too. I can't remember any passage So the most famous passage in Hobbes is the passage in which he ends the passage by saying, life is short, brutish, whatever. But prior to that, in the same paragraph, which starts with uncertainty, he says, knowledge of the earth, astronomy, navigation, all of these become impossible under conditions of uncertainty. Now, I don't think he's right, and Gandhi doesn't think he's right. But in the face of that, what does Hobbes say? He says, in effect, because our lives are in this precarious situation, we must create politics. We must rely on politics. And there's a specific kind of politics that he wants to rely on, which is absolute politics. Now, Gandhi 
is not fearful of this because he has a kind of confidence in the social preserving the downward. So if you think of Hobbes, he doesn't think that the social can save you because you go down a precipice which ends in death. Now, Gandhi, in contrast, believes that if you're going down, it's a gentle hill and you can be stopped at any point on the hill. So imagine that the bottom of the hill is where you have to rely on politics. But since the hill is gentle, and before you get to the bottom, there are all this social mediation, the most important being religion and family, etc. So Gandhi doesn't vest much in the political. So to link it with Arendt, as you know, what is central to Arendt's conception of the political is deliberation. That's the one thing that I think is central to the political. Now, I don't personally think that category of deliberation is important to Gandhi. That's what I think is the big difference between these two. So what if I were to say that if we wanted to characterize Arendt's political, not by deliberation, although that's certainly part of it for her, but by appearing in public Mm. through action in a way that takes courage because you risk your individual life in order to do something that is meaningful and that would become part of the story of the world and thus contribute to what she calls immortality. Mm. So for her, she has a great line in The Human Condition where she says, there is no politics possible without transcendence into an earthly immortality uh, or worldly immortality, I believe she says. And what I think she means by that is that politics actually means doing things in a post-religious age. In a, you know, she's a post-metaphysical thinker in an in a age after God has died. And, and, yeah. and we can talk, we, you, know, you can refute that or not, but that's how she approaches it. And she says, we need actions that will transcend our own lives and tell a story and become part of a story that unites and bonds us together as a people. And and so politics for her needs those kind of actions that aim at immortality, that lead to the kind of storytelling that bonds people together. Does that play better with your understanding of politics? So I think the difference with Gandhi is that he has a notion of transcendence, but it's not going to be worldly. And that's the sense in which Gandhi is a deeply religious thinker. There's a line somewhere in the beginning of his autobiography where he says, what I've strived for all these 30 years is to see God face to face, to achieve moksha. And then he goes on to say, all my public actions are subsidiary to this purpose. And at the end of the paragraph, he says, this is a spiritual notion. What he says at the beginning of the passage is, what I have aspired for is self-knowledge. And that line ends with moksha. The paragraph itself ends with, 
And every individual, I believe, can achieve this. So he makes no difference between the individual and the crowd. So what does one make of that? Look at the concepts that are in this passage. There's self-knowledge, there's transcendence, there's this notion of moksha, there's a link to public or political action, and there's a notion of spiritual self-achievement. And in contrast, there's a notion of there being no difference between a group of individuals and a crowd. So, as I was saying uh, the other day, he doesn't believe the crowd to be essentially different from a bunch of individuals. Now, Arendt, I think, does have a notion of the crowd as being different from a bunch of individuals. And as you well know, what is central to Arendt's notion of politics or political action is this issue of being remembered. So doesn't she somewhere say that Pericles is the great political figure? Yeah. Now, I don't think that's important to Gandhi, this idea of being remembered. So trying to think this through within the context of the plague, the coronavirus that we're suffering now, one of the things that we see is healthcare workers being called upon to do incredibly courageous self-sacrifice. And it's sometimes portrayed as a professional duty. No. You know, we've been trained for this. This is what we're doing. But there's also, uh, you know, I mean, there's this, there's this doctor at, uh, in New York who's become widely read, who compares the doctors to Balto, the dog who delivers the, the medicine in Alaska uh, hmm. during another epidemic. And, it, and it's sort of reminiscent of, of Winston Churchill uh, going back, you know, sacrifice, we're going to come together, here's who we are. And, and there's a claim of something meaningful, that we are part of a, a world, a politics, uh, and that there are things that are important. And then there's the claim, we just all have to stay alive, and that means stay inside, give up your Bangladeshi grocer, give up your parents who are in a, you know, alone in a room, give up your child who's in an apartment down the hall because you don't want to see them. Yeah. And, and I think we all know that these are medically necessary in some way. And, I, and, and, I, and this is not an attempt to say we shouldn't be doing this, etc. But it is, I guess what I'm interested in is, A, identifying what's lost. Yeah. And B, asking, in, in a way, I see this epidemic as, as a clear illustration and manifestation of a principle that Hobbes, Arendt, and Gandhi identified, which is there's no institution that we value more than simply keeping people alive. I'm not sure Gandhi believes that. No, I think Gandhi doesn't believe that. I think Arendt doesn't believe it, but I think Hobbes did. But I think Gandhi and Arendt saw that, or at least Arendt saw that as that was one of the qualities of the modern age that she saw and she wrote against um, the victory of what she called anima laborans, the, the laboring animal yeah. that simply wants to keep itself alive at the expense of building a world through work and artisanship and art and at the expense of action where you build 
stories of courage, etc. So is there, a, is there, should we be, or is it impossible today? Um, should we be trying to articulate those things which we will risk our lives for and will risk getting sick for? Not the economy, maybe, yeah. or, or is it? But what is it that we should be willing to risk for, risk ourselves for? So let me tell you a story. In 1919, the British imperial authorities introduced these draconian acts or bills called the Rollet Bills. And Gandhi opposed them. This was the beginning of his first Satyagraha. Now, six months before that, while the First World War was still on, Gandhi asked the Viceroy and told the people that even though he believed in nonviolence, it was important for Indians to go to Europe and fight on behalf of the British and risk their own lives. Because as he said, they must show themselves to be prepared to lose their lives. They must show this particular kind of courage to establish themselves as being ready for freedom. So what's significant about this? Two things. One, he has a conception of protest, Satyagraha. And two, he has this notion that we must be prepared to risk our lives. The second involves a particular kind of dramatic courage. The first involves having a conception of what is just and unjust. And the third story I, I want to tell you is when he was in South Africa, his wife got very sick, Kasturba was his wife's name. And the doctor who was seeing her said that she will only survive if she has beef broth. Now, as you may or may not know, beef is proscribed for Hindus. And Gandhi said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. She was in coma, so she couldn't make that decision. So Gandhi was prepared for her to die so that she could, as it were, live by the principles that gave her life meaning, which were religious principles, etc. So why do I tell you these stories? In two of them, life is at stake. And in two of them, what Gandhi is saying is that we should show that special courage in which we risk life. That's the First World War example. And I think it's the Kasturba example. The what example? The Kasturba, his wife example. There's ambiguity there because, you know, as I said, it's not clear this was a will decision. And in the first example, the Satyagraha example, he says, to the potential signatories of the Satyagraha pledge. He's giving instructions to those who are going to get people to sign this pledge. And he says to them, you must only ask people above the age of 18 who are not the sole providers of their family. And you have to make sure that they understand what they're signing. And in elaborating that, 
he says, because it's a pledge, it is like having a cordon around the self. And for me, that's a very powerful image because it's associated with not having the fear of death. These are the things that matter most to me as being a scholar of Gandhi without necessarily agreeing with him. These are what I think about because these are all in some sense related to the conditions he associates with self-knowledge. So if I can, I can ask the question, and I, obviously you and I both are in a situation where we try to interpret Gandhi or Arendt, we don't always have to agree with them. Yeah. Are there sacrifices we're making right now hmm. that you think we are wrong to be making and that we will regret making? You know, I value my life too much to be able to say that, to concur with the opinion you've just expressed, because I know if I get the virus or I get sick, my life is at stake. And as you know, I have a wife and daughter. And, but as I said at the beginning of this, I'm not sure I sufficiently value life to want to take all the precautions that people are taking to protect themselves. And yet I see that as a kind of weakness, a lack of courage, a word that is being used right now to characterize the health workers who are going to the hospital, frontline workers. Now, that's the word Gandhi used when he asked the viceroy to allow him to recruit people to fight in the First World War. These were frontline workers. I don't know what I believe on this issue other than saying I feel I have contradictory views. I, I hear you. And I, I, I think I feel, I mean, I think that's why this conversation was one I wanted to have with you because yeah. as, as you know, Hannah Arendt escaped Germany and then France from a concentration camp or yeah. internment camp. And, uh, and then one of the things she advocated very strongly for during the war was for the Jews to create an army to fight, not to, not to die. And in a letter she writes in 1942, she says, you know, there was once a happy time we could say better to be stand, to die standing uh, than on your knees. Yeah. Right. I mean, in a sense to, to have the courage to fight rather than, yeah. than wait to be killed, whether it's by a virus or, or someone else. And then she says, there's a wicked time when intellectuals grew feeble-minded and declared life to be the highest good. Yeah. And then, then she offers a third idea, which is this dreadful time in which, in a sense, when life becomes the highest good, there's nothing to stop death from reigning its highest terror because in the end, in the name of keeping ourselves alive, we will do almost anything. Yeah. And, um, and that's, the, that's, that's her analysis of the 1940s. Um, yeah, I mean, as I may have mentioned to you uh, in an earlier discussion, after Kristallnacht, many people called on Gandhi to address the question of the Jews in Germany. And I think I'm right in saying he wrote three pieces about the Jews. Now, in one of them, he says, what Hitler is doing is awful. It's reprehensible. 
But you Jews, if you want to protect your honor, you should stand up and refuse to abide by these discriminatory laws, even at the risk of the Nazis killing you. So he sees, and this is very Arendtian, he sees honor and life, or dying with honor, and living with dishonor as being choices. And that, I think, is one of the, I was going to say, many things that on which Gandhi and Arendt agree. I think there are many more on which they disagree. And I could tell you what I think, uh, where they disagree. So as we begin to move maybe to an end here, I guess one, one hopes this will end at some point. And, um, you know, we, we hope that we'll be back on our street corners and taking walks yeah. and teaching in person. Yeah. We'll have an election. Yeah. We'll have teaching. Yeah. What do you see as the impact? I mean, I know you raised some questions before, right? Will, will, will there still be teaching institutions that teach in person and not online? But maybe politically, yeah. when one thinks of World War II, as you've been mentioning, you know, there are speeches and actions of people like Churchill or, or Roosevelt or uh, others that are remembered that helped rebuild yeah. a world. Yeah. You have the soldiers, right? And here we have the medical workers. But where do you see the, the hope? What do you see coming out of this period? So let me try and answer your question by a discussion I had my, with my wife the other day. And the issue was this three-week lockdown that has been imposed in, in India. And I said to my wife, um, imagine the worst. Imagine that 100 million people die if we in India don't do anything about this. That's how many died in the Second World War. And all the countries where they died had impressive, and in the case of Germany and Japan, rather rapid recoveries. Now, I said to her, that's a way of being optimistic by thinking through that example. Now, I think that example is very tragic because to take it seriously is to imagine 100 people dying, 100 million, million people yeah. dying. But I also think it's an example if you set it alongside the Second World War, that can give us a sense of optimism. Now, you know, if I was one of those 100 million, would I still say this? I don't know. Uh, if my child was one of those 100 million, would I still say this? Yeah. Clearly not. But from where I sit, there are ways about being optimistic. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it comes back to what we were talking about before that you and I both study figures who have some sense of both tragedy, but also transcendence. Yes. So one can be optimistic because one knows that even though we might die, yeah. the world that we're part of will carry on. Yeah. And yet increasingly that's a view that can't be spoken in public. Yeah. And 
when Governor Cuomo said what you quoted him as saying, it's the responsibility of the government to preserve life, I immediately thought of Hobbes because I see him as being a philosopher who, in a sense, initiated this tradition in which I would place Governor Cuomo. I don't know if you know this, but uh, in his Nobel Prize address, uh, Obama said the first responsibility of government is to supply security. It's a similar thought as Obama. I think both of these people speaking in the modern tradition of politics. Gandhi and Arendt, I think, have some notion of something that exceeds politics. So there's some kind of transcendence. In Gandhi's case, it can be named, or he names it as moksha. I think in Arendt's case, it's being remembered. One of the problems with this conversation is that because the president has made this about the economy, it's hard to imagine a counter to the idea of life that's not just about profits right now in the public conversation. But if we had someone else Hmm. as the president or as the governor, and you were an advisor, what would one call upon us to think about? And to say, look, yes, we, we are going to try and keep people alive. That is part of our goal. Yeah. But we also have to realize that many people are going to die. And by the way, Cuomo has said that. Yeah. And that we will have to carry on. Yes. And there's going to be something worth carrying on for. Yes. But what's not happening, in my view, is the articulation of what that something that's worth carrying on for is, which I take to be part of leadership. And I'm wondering how you would frame that. I'm not sure I have an answer to that, but I think the idea of living, who is it who says, uh, he's an American figure, he's a New England figure, John Henry. um, uh, Give me liberty or give me death? Yes, yes. Patrick Henry, right? Patrick Henry. So I don't think Gandhi would ever say something like that, but he would say, give me honor or give me death. And from my comfortable academic chair, I agree with that sentiment. I might be prepared to change my opinion if somebody had a gun pointing towards me. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. Yeah. Well, Uday, um, I want to thank you for a really provocative and thoughtful conversation. I hope I get to see you soon. Be well. (laughs) Be well. Be safe and also be honorable, I guess we should say. Yes, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. We'll see you soon. We hope you have enjoyed this conversation with Professor Uday Mehta. If you enjoyed listening to this edition of the Amor Mundi podcast, please visit us online at hac.bard.edu and click subscribe to find podcasts, original writing, videos, and more, all delivered twice a week to your inbox. It's bold and provocative thinking in the spirit of Hannah Arendt, and it's free. To learn how to become a member of the Hannah Arendt Center and support our work, just click on Join HAC.